Well, I'm deeply honored to be here uh, this morning, and I'm very, very thankful to Pastor Seth for uh, giving me the invitation to come and, and preach and share God's Word with you. I love that man, and I know you love your pastor. Uh, he is probably, in my opinion, one of the greatest leaders in our Southern Baptist Convention, and I hate him because he's so good <laughs> at leading. I wish I could lead the way he leads. I'm just joking about that, but he is an incredible leader. And uh, the things that he's done and the work with the uh, International Mission Board, and I know you know all of those things, but I have a deep, deep appreciation for Pastor Seth and am honored to come to uh, Cross Lanes and to be able to bring God's Word to you. Uh, I miss West Virginia. I shared with the pastors uh, this week at the WVCSB that, uh, you know, the only place that a person should ever be is in the center of the will of God. Would you agree with that? And yet sometimes the hardest place to be is in the will of God. And so sometimes God sends you to places where you want to be. Sometimes he sends you to places where you need to be. And you've got to be open to that and be obedient to that. And uh, one of the questions that I get asked is, uh, you know, why I left West Virginia. We, we, my wife and I love West Virginia, and we, we have very fond memories of our time here. Uh, but uh, my wife uh, chased after me for... 40-plus uh, years in ministry. This is my 50th year in ministry. And uh, she chased after me for, I think, 47, 48 of those years of everywhere, anywhere I, I felt like we needed to go, she would go. And uh, this was an opportunity to get her home and get her near her family and get to near her our kids. And God opened that door, and I needed to be obedient to that. And you know the saying that uh, when mama's happy, everybody's happy. <laughs> you guys understand that. And so I'm thankful. She's actually taking care of grandkids as we speak. And uh, so she's very, very happy. And every time uh, that I get a little discouraged or whatever, all I need to do is look in her face and look in her eyes. And when I see the shine in her eyes and the smile on her face, I know exactly that what we're doing is, is the right thing and grateful for that. Let me get you to open your Bibles to uh, Philippians uh, chapter 3, and we're going to look at uh, verse 12 beginning there, and if you want to follow along in your Bible, you can do that. Here's what the Scripture says, Paul's writing, he says, not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I've also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way, and if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. A French runner, Tangue Pepiot, ran for the University of Oregon, and you may have seen these pictures. He was in men's steeplechase, and he had a really good lead, was coming down the home stretch, and he began to celebrate. And while he is celebrating, a runner from the University of Washington passed him and won the race with one meter to go. It's a picture of the Christian life. I think it's a picture of the church. 
that we often start well and we have really, really good intentions, but we don't end well. We have these goals of what we want to achieve, but then we get distracted or we begin to celebrate the achievements that we've already made and all the while we get past and we end up losing. And sometimes we look back and forget where we are. Uh, the Bible is filled with illustrations like this. You have Lot's wife, who God delivered from this evil city, and yet as she's leaving, she looks back longingly for the very city that God had just destroyed and was turned into a pillar of salt. That's what we remember her for. A man came to Jesus and said, I want to be your disciple. I will follow you anywhere, but he had divided loyalties. And Jesus said that a man such as that is not fit for the kingdom of God if he puts his hand to the plow and looks back. The Apostle Paul is using that analogy here in chapter 3 where the key verse is verse 14 where, where he says, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Now, Paul had already told us what that goal is. He said in verse 10 that my goal is to know Christ and the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, and to be conformed to the image of His death. And it was that goal, that heavenly goal, to be like Christ that He was striving for, that He was pursuing, that He was seeking. Paul was a man who started well, but Paul was a man who wanted to end well. As he looked at all of his accomplishments and all the things that he had done as an Israelite, he realized the very things that he had accomplished in his own power and in his own works, that these were the things that were keeping him literally from being right with God. So Paul says that he rejects his past, beginning at verse 4 of chapter 3, that he rejects his past, that he leaves it behind... But then beginning at verse 8, he reminds us, here are all of the things that when we leave these things behind, here are all of the things that we gain in Christ. The knowledge of Christ and His righteousness, fellowship with Christ, the power to live the Christian life. And yet, here's the interesting thing. He says, although he has all of these things, the one thing he has not done is that he has not achieved perfection yet. He is still striving for it. Do you know that when you and I are saved, that because the presence of the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells in us, there's actually now a desire built within us to grow. There's reasons why we want to grow. And I don't remember where I found this list, but I think it's very interesting. Eight things that give us reason of why we want to grow. One is it glorifies God. Number two, it verifies our regeneration. Number three, it grants assurance. Number four, it preserves us from sorrow. Number five, it protects the cause of Christ from reproach. Number six, it produces joy and usefulness. Number seven, it enhances your witness. And number eight, it embodies the truth. Now, here, here's where the problem comes in. 
Sometimes Christians become discouraged and are discouraged because they have been taught or have bought into this idea that some are teaching that's called sinless perfectionism. This idea that when you become a Christian, you never sin again. I mean, it'd be a great idea, wouldn't it? But all that happens is you buy into that idea and all of a sudden then you find out what reality is and you mess up and it discourages you. It's why Christians quit. It's why they give up. It's why they're not living the Christian life is because they're thinking, well, that was told to me. I thought that was what was true and I cannot achieve that particular goal. Well, the Bible doesn't teach us about a sinless perfectionism. But what it does teach us is that when you are saved, because we are still in the flesh, you and I are going to struggle with sin and temptation. But as we struggle with that, it is part of the battle, it is part of the fight, it is part of the race that we're running, because the goal that we're looking for is the perfection that we can have in Christ. And so that's what Paul is addressing here. He's told us earlier in the, in the chapter and earlier in, in the Philippians, he said to work out your salvation, not work for your salvation, but he says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to be blameless and pure. And so he says, therefore, if we're going to grow in our faith, we must then pursue the prize of Christ's likeness until God ushers us into His presence. That's the key thought. If we're going to grow in our faith, we must pursue after the prize of Christ's likeness until God ushers us into His presence. Well, how do we do that? Well, when we look at this text and and look at these verses, Paul draws out for us some truths to understand that if he's calling us to pursue after that heavenly call, to pursue after being like Christ, he then shares with us how we do that. Number one is that you need to remember who holds on to you. Now keep your Bibles open. He says in verse 12, he says, I make every effort to take hold of it because I've also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, he says, I make every effort to take hold of what? To take hold of the things that God has promised, to take hold of this goal of Christ-likeness, to pursue after the Christ-likeness that God has promised me, the heavenly prize, the heavenly call. But the reason why he is able to do that is because of, st of this statement. He says, I have been, look at this. He says, I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. That phrase, taken hold of, is actually one word in the Greek language. It means to make something one's own, to win, to attain, to gain control of someone through pursuit. That's an interesting doctrine that's taught there. That Paul says that he is, he is taking hold of, he is pursuing after the prize of the high calling that he, that he has in Christ, but at the same time, it is that God is pursuing after him. Did you notice that? He is taking hold of this, but God is taking hold of him. One of the interesting doctrines that is taught 
in the Bible is the fact that God pursues us. Now, we understand that God commands us to pursue Him. The Bible says that if you seek for Him, that you will find Him. But we also learn in Scripture is that God is the initiator of this pursuit, that God is the one who is the initiator of, of everything that we do spiritually with Him. In fact, Jesus in John chapter 4 said that no one comes to Him unless the Father first draws them. Jesus even taught parables to illustrate that fact. But He taught several parables also to illustrate the fact that God pursues man. The, the entire story of the Bible is about God pursuing man. In Genesis chapter 3, you know that story, where Adam and Eve sinned, and they went and hid themselves in the garden. And I, I love how the Scripture pictures this, where it says that God would come and would walk through the garden in the cool of the day. And He cries out, and He says, Adam, Adam, where are you? He wasn't asking that question. You know this. He wasn't asking that question because he couldn't find Adam. He knew where Adam was, but Adam didn't know where Adam was. And he was pursuing after them. It is, as one man wrote, the, the first missionary effort as the Creator sought to sought out His lost creatures out of a heart of reconciliation. Jesus told us the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin in, in Luke chapter 15 to teach how God pursues us. Jesus taught those parables to help us to understand the heart of God, that He knows each of us intimately, and that His mission on earth, Jesus said, was to seek and to save that which was lost. To seek something is to pursue it. Well... The ultimate example of God's pursuit of that and pursuit of us is the fact that He sent His Son Jesus to die on the sin, to die on the cross for our sins. You see, we could not reach God through our own efforts. And so He reached down to us. Do you realize that God loves us so much that He even pursues us when we are obstinate? Isaiah 65, God said to the Israelites, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, Here am I, here am I. All day long I've held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations of people who continually provoke me to my very face. But here's the good news. Because God has pursued us, He now makes us His own. That we belong to Him, that we are His. You see, Paul was saying that I am pursuing after this prize of Christ's likeness because God had pursued Him, because God had taken hold of Him. For Paul, in the language that he's using there, there was a suddenness of that personal action by God that He laid hold of us and He's never going to let, let us go. You see, one of the reasons why we can pursue after that goal of being like Christ 
is that in God taking hold of us, there is security in that. God has taken hold of us, and He's never going to let us go. And we are secure in Him, and because we, He holds on to us, we can pursue after the goal of being like Christ. Let me give you a second thing that Paul tells us. Not only do we need to remember who holds on to us as we pursue after this goal of being like Christ, but a second step that Paul tells us that we need to take is that you've got to let go of your past. Look at verse 13. He says, forgetting what is behind. Fact is, Christians don't have a lot of problem. People, I don't think, have a lot of problem believing in the forgiveness of God. I think where we get into trouble is because we have troubles forgiving ourselves. Here, Paul is admitting that he's not achieved everything that he should have or needed to have. He's not reached the goal yet. He says, I'm not perfect yet. But, real, but what he realizes is that Christ has taken a hold of him and he must pursue that calling, he must pursue that goal. In other words, Paul was running this race because he wanted to grasp the very reason for why Christ died for him. His goal was to be consistent with Christ's goal. And so he tells us here that he's not satisfied with where he is spiritually. He says he's not attained or achieved it. He's not yet perfected. That word perfected is a word that, that deals with the idea of practical righteousness. Now, earlier, Paul had dealt with the issue of righteousness in what we call imputed righteousness. And that may be a big word. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular word. But it means that at your salvation, at the moment that you're saved, that God declares that you're righteous, that His righteousness, more literally, is placed on your account. But being righteous with God is much bigger than just being in a state of being, righteousness now, Paul says, is something that we have to live out practically. That if we are righteous and we understand that God has placed His righteousness in us and He has placed on our account His righteousness. You remember the words of Paul? That God made Him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. That's imputed righteousness. That He placed His righteousness in us. But if we understand that He has placed His righteousness in us, it is now part of that pursuit that we have after God that we are going to allow righteousness to color everything that we are. Everything that we do. Our words our actions, our language, our attitudes, everything. But I think that's where we struggle. Because we realize we're not there yet. It's not, I'm not trying to make an excuse for what we do. But we struggle with those kinds of things because we have not arrived. But the reason why some of you have barely gotten out of the starting blocks 
is because either you cannot let go of your past or you are living and longing for the past. Now, I'm not going to go through a litany of mistakes here, but here's the point. You will never be able to press into the future and to press on toward the goal that God has for you if you are constantly living in the past. You'll never be able to live in the, in the forgiveness of God if you refuse to forgive yourself. Being able to forgive ourselves is grounded, you see, in the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. It's not about human achievement. Being able to forgive ourselves for the past is grounded in what Christ has done for us. I mean, think about it. The past for every Christian is marked by spiritual victories and spiritual spiritual defeats, by personal friendships and personal feuds, healing relationships and hurtful ones. But the past is behind us. We cannot recall it. We cannot relive it. We can only learn from it. And so Paul says that his ability to forget what was behind him was the secret to him being able to move forward to grasp the prize that Christ has for him. So let go of whatever holds you back. That failure, that anger, that habit, that sin, that unforgiveness, that success, but also that failure. All of these things were paid for on the cross by Christ, and so what God calls us to do is that if we are going to pursue after the prize of the goal of Christ's likeness in our life, we've got to let go of our past. Here's the third step. You want to pursue after that goal that Christ has for you, you need to keep your focus on the future. Look here at verse 13. He says, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Well, the reason why Paul knew that he hadn't attained to everything is because his focus is now on the completion of his salvation, his glorification, his resurrection from the dead. That's the prize to be attained. It is at that moment that perfection occurs, that perfection happens. And so Paul repeats these words. He says, in the midst of that, we need to press on to remind us of the constant battle, of the constant race, of the constant strain. You can use your imagination to picture the runner here as he sees the finish line. That it's in sight. That his breathing is becomes shallow and fast as he runs flat out for the finish that his legs are drumming like pistons his feet are pounding the course with painful thunder his throat dry his stomach groaning he lays himself out for the finish sweat flying his outstretched arms flailing in the wind his body is tired his legs seem to be giving way But he presses on because the goal is in sight. All of the training, all of the running, everything that he has done has now come to fruition and the race is almost over. And the prize that he's looking for is the heavenly call 
That's actually a really good translation. This prize would include the full and complete gaining of Christ. But I want you to notice that the focus here is on heaven, not on earth. That it is at the threshold of heaven that he receives the thing that he desires most in his life. And yes, there are the rewards that God has promised us. But understand what Paul is really pursuing after is the fact that he will be in the very presence of Christ. That Jesus is the prize. That Jesus is the goal. That we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. So keep running. Stay focused on the prize. Here's the last thing. You want to gain that Christ-likeness, that prize, that goal of becoming like Jesus? Well, remember that God's holding on to you and He's not going to let you go. Let go of the things of the past that are weighing you down, that are keeping you from being what God wants you to be. Look to the future and realize that Christ is the prize after which we're striving. And then number four, remain steadfast. He says, therefore, verse 15, look at this. He says, let all of us who are mature think this way. Now, Paul understood, and and this is, I think, part of the problem that we face in the Christian life, that you get saved and you get excited. Remember, Remember when it was when you came to Christ? And you get saved and you're excited about Jesus. And then there's always that complainer. That well-meaning soul who throws cold water on the fire that God had stirred in your heart. Well, Paul knew there would be those like that. The constant complainers who would disagree with him, who would seek to discourage these believers from pressing on. And so here's his advice. He says, remember this, mature Christians, mature people don't think that they are perfect or have arrived. Mature Christians are ones who don't always look back at their spiritual accomplishments and live on those laurels. They also don't live in the tyranny of the shoulds, that I should have done this. I wish I had done that. Instead, mature Christians are those who pour their energies into the pursuit of knowing Christ, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, and to be conformed to the image of His death. Mature Christians are those who see the Christian life as a race that is not yet over. And Paul wasn't here to argue those these facts. That's why he says what he does in 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 verse 15 and verse 16. He says there would be those who would disagree with him, but he was confident in the fact that if they were truly seeking God, they too would come to this same conclusion. But for him now, time was of the essence. There's not time for spiritual smugness. You remember, Paul is writing the book of Philippians from being under house arrest in Rome. Now, he would be released, and we know that, but at this moment, though Paul was confident that he would be, he did not have the knowledge if whether he would or whether he would not. So there wasn't time to argue about the things that are insignificant. 
He says, in any case, verse 16, we should live up to whatever truth we have obtained. The idea is to stay in step with the truth that they've learned. What they have achieved at this point, what they have learned at this point should guide them into the future as a standard by which they would walk collectively. In other words, the honest assessment is to know where you are right now spiritually, to let go of the past and to remain steadfast and walk together. The phrase, live up, where he says, verse 16, in any case we should live up to whatever truth, generally means an orderly or disciplined walk. So here's the final admonition to us. If we're going to achieve the prize of Christ, we must remain true to what we have learned and what we have gained in the Christian life. And then we must remain in a collective discipline that should characterize the entire church, meaning that we must not be swayed by infatuating teachings of false doctrine, but instead we should seek to implement in our lives what we, have, what we already know. In other words, if you want to remain steadfast, every single Christian has got to be committed to be discipled, to be growing in your faith, and to take the things that your church is teaching you and make application of that to your life, that that knowledge includes knowing Christ, that knowledge includes looking forward to the resurrection. On August 7th, 1954, during the British Empire Games in Vancouver, Canada, at that time, the greatest mile-run matchup took place. It was touted as the Miracle Mile because two of the competitors were the only two men who had ever run a sub-four-minute mile. Britisher Roger Bannister, Australian John Landy. Bannister was the first to ever accomplish that feat. He later would become known as Sir Roger Bannister and master of an Oxford college. But as he got ready for this race, he strategized that he would relax and that he would run easy during the time of the race until they come to the last lap. But Landy had taken a different strategy. And he pressed on and pressed hurriedly. And by the time the third lap came, Bannister had to change his strategy because Landy had a significant lead at that moment. And so at the third lap, Bannister increased his speed. And by the time they came around ready for the fourth lap, they were dead even. Landy again increased his speed. At the interview after the race, Bannister said he was worried that if Landy kept up with that same speed that Bannister would lose the race, that he couldn't keep up. And then what happened as they were coming around that final turn is that famous moment that's been replayed thousands of times in print and in flickering black and white celluloid. As in the last stride in the home stretch, the crowd is screaming. Landy is unable to hear the footsteps of Bannister. And he makes that fatal mistake of looking back. 
And at the moment that he looks back, Bannister comes around his other shoulder and passes him. And by just a mere yards, beats Landy and wins the race. It was a fatal mistake. He looked back. The sports-knowledgeable Apostle Paul would have seen Landy's mistake in a flash because he knew that if you're going to be a successful runner, you must not ever look over your shoulder. You must forget what lies behind because if the runner even gives a slight glance to the past, a slight glance over his shoulder, you lose seconds, you lose rhythm, you lose focus, and like Landy, you lose the race. So keep your focus forward. Forget what lies behind. Forget about your accomplishments. Forget about your failures. Keep living the Christian life because we are certain to achieve the resurrection. And as a church, let me encourage you, do that together. Don't let Satan divide you. Christ's return is going to be soon. So church, press on. Let me pray for us. We thank you, Father. For the opportunity to be in your house, to learn from your word, and to understand what you're going to do. We are thankful, God, that, that you give us clear instruction that when we say we want to be like you, Jesus, but we don't know how, we can look in your word and your word teaches us exactly what to do. And so may we take these thoughts and these ideas and apply them to our life today and make it our goal as a church that we're going to be like Christ. And it is in the name of our Savior Jesus that we're going to pray and ask these things. Amen. In just a minute, we're going to have a, a song of, of worship and kind of a song of response, a way that we close out the service so that you can ponder in your heart, what is God saying to you? And Pastor Seth will be up here at the very close of the service, and if you'd like to come by and, and talk with him about a decision that you need to make, you can do that. But here's the thing. Some of the things that I talked about this morning, if you're not a follower of Christ, you go, I, I don't understand any of that. Well, come have that conversation with Pastor Seth and say, I, I'm not a follower of Christ. Tell me what I need to do to believe and to trust in Him. If you're not a part of a local body of Christians, a body of, of believers, you need to be. That's one of the secrets to being able to remain strong in the Christian faith. Talk to Pastor Seth about that after the service, about what, it needs, what needs to happen to become a member here at Crosslands. But as a believer, let me ask you a question. Are you fulfilling the call that God has placed on your life as seen in the text? Are you living in the fact that God holds on to you? Are you resting in that? Are you holding on to things from your past that are dragging you down? 
Are your eyes focused on the future? And are you pressing on? Maybe there you need someone to pray with, and I know your pastor would love to pray with you about that, to help you make those decisions. Let me do those things. Let's stand together. Brother, lead us, and let's worship and close out the service.